This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're going to talk about four common causes of tax debt and what to do if you can't pay. So when you file an income tax return, it could be a financial win if you're expecting a refund. I know I've been in that place oh, every once in a while. Not very often, though, mm-hmm. right? Do you get a bunch of money back? But it's a happy day, right? You get the it check is. from the government. That's nice when they give you something back for a change, right? Absolutely. Now, the flip side of it, it can be pretty stressful if you're one of the thousands of Canadians who have unpaid tax debt. So that means I'm owing, right? Exactly. And Elaine, you know, the first thing I'd, I'd love for people to understand is not filing a return because you think you owe them money is the wrong decision. Um, so even if you owe the government money, they probably already know that. They generally have information from your employer or a bunch of information about you. And by not filing a return, you're actually in a worse situation than if you file a return and owe money. So oh. our piece of advice for everybody is always file your returns every year. Okay. This is fascinating to me that Canada Revenue Agency last year disclosed that nearly half of the unpaid billions of dollars of tax debt that they are owed is from individuals, mm-hmm. not companies, not large corporations, but just regular folks. Yeah, that was surprising to me. And I think if you asked even, you know, any financial expert, you know, hey, what do you think is the split of, you know, is it 80% owed by corporations? I thought it was 80, 90% of the tax that is owed by corporations, you know, who are deferring it or not paying or whatever. But no, it's 50-50. So um, CRA can see that there's a lot of folks who get behind on their taxes and it's something they can take aggressive means to collect on, which we'll definitely talk about either in this segment or in a future segment. But yeah, a lot of people in Canada, they end up owing the government money. So I think today's segment will be good to understand, you know, why does that arise? Why do you end up owing money at the end of the year? Okay, you ask the question, why do we end up with so much tax debt? Like, what's going on? Yeah, and, and you know, this this segment, it comes from me seeing my clients and having them tell me, you know, I wish I had done this differently or wish I hadn't done this or it didn't work out the way that I had anticipated. And the number one thing I find that people find doesn't work out the way they thought is cashing in RRSPs. So people are cashing them in when they shouldn't or... What's well, the, what is that? Yeah. And just to make sure we're all on, on the same page. Please. So RRSPs are, you know, registered retirement savings yeah. plans. So these are the money that you can put away um, for your retirement. And then when you put it away, you get a tax deduction. It comes off of your income. Now, the challenge is that when you withdraw money from your RRSPs, those funds need to be added back to your income. And that can often trigger a balance owing. And the reason for that is when you withdraw your RRSPs, financial institutions, they will withhold a little bit of income tax, and it can vary a little bit from institution to institution and definitely from province to province, but very rarely is it enough because your bank, as much as they might be able to predict, they really don't know your marginal tax rate. So if you're calling, uh, cashing in RRSPs and your bank is withholding, let's say, 20% of the amount that you you withdrew, so you cash in 10000 you get 8000 they hold back 2000 to the government, and that might be less than 
than half of what you owe. If you're sitting in a 50% tax bracket, you might have to pay the government literally half of those RRSPs that you're cashing in, which a lot of folks don't think that far down the road. They're just trying to solve the immediate issue. Right. And then when they cash in the RRSPs, it's at tax time next year, they see, oh my God, I've got a balance owing. And sometimes they repeat the cycle again. They cash in more RRSPs to pay that balance and then end up owing more in the following year. Right. So never, I mean, can is it fair to say never a good idea to cash in your RRSP? Well, never is a tough thing because there might be some times when it makes a whole lot of sense. Okay. So, you know, let's think about if you've had really high income for a period of a few years, you've been in that 50% tax bracket, but then for this year, for whatever reason, you haven't been able to work, or your income is really low. In those cases, pulling out your RRSPs might make a whole lot of sense okay. because probably you need the money to live first off, but then second off, probably your tax rate is a lot lower because you're not in that, you haven't earned as much income, so right. you don't have to give as much to the government. So there are times when it makes sense, but but I think one thing that I might put the never on to Elaine just to give some certainty here is let's say never cash in your RRSPs to pay debts unless you've spoken to a trustee first and you understand that these are actually protected assets. Exactly. And that's and I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I was thinking. They're protected. And that was a, a surprise to me when I first learned that. Yeah. And I'm so thrilled on, on this show, Elaine, because I think we've got some brilliant listeners out there that uh, fewer and fewer people are coming into my office and saying that they've cashed in their RRSPs. Good. Before we started doing the show, you know, one every couple of weeks, I'd be, you know, a little bit despondent internally and not trying to make the person feel too bad, no. but explaining to them, you know, you did something you didn't have to do. And it seems like word is finally getting out. You know, you can protect RRSPs. Yeah, it's an automatic reaction for sure. You're in debt. Where have I got some cash that That's I can right. get, disp- you know, so-called disposable income? That might be that might be what you think and then using it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so working multiple jobs. Yeah, definitely. This is probably the number two thing that I see causing people to go into tax debt. And it's a case of you're trying to do the right thing, uh, but sometimes it can come back to buy you. And what that can mean is in Vancouver, a lot of people need more than one income to make ends meet. Maybe they can't get full-time hours at one job uh, or even full-time hours aren't enough to pay, you know, rent and living expenses and things like that. Now, the challenge is when you sit down with your employer and you figure out what your average income is going to be and they set a certain amount to withhold your taxes, that's basically set up. You shouldn't have a balance owing if you only work that job. But when you add a second job, it's often the case that that second employer doesn't know anything about the first employer. and the taxes they're going to withhold are assuming that this is the only income that you're going to have. And again, the more income in Canada you earn, the more on a percentage basis you have to give to the government. So it's very likely that that second job, even though you think you're adding to your income every month, at the end of the year, you might have a pretty significant tax bill because a bunch of that income should have been remitted to Revenue Canada. Got it. Okay. So the solution there is just to be transparent with both employers. So, you know, go to your new employer and say, you know what, here's my base income level from my day job or whatever other job. um, And here's the amount of tax I need to get withheld. And your employer will work with you. They'll hold back whatever it is. And let's say they hold back too much. Well, you've just got yourself a tax refund. Exactly. You're giving the government an interest-free loan, which we know is not great, but it's better than the alternative of actually having a balance to clear. Do you have any statistics in in your head offhand about the number of people who uh, come to you for assistance who are self-employed. Like, is there sort mm-hmm. of a percentage? Of, I mean, there must be. Oh, yeah. It's, what it's, kind of percentage I'd is say it? it's probably between 20 and 30% of folks. Okay, it's, so it's, being self-employed yeah. is a significant uh, sort of category then of, as part of this. Oh, exactly, Elena. That, that's our third thing we're going to talk about today is just, just being self-employed. Um, you know, you really have to step into the shoes of CRA. You have to be your own accountant. You have to calculate the amount of income that you're going to earn. You have to forecast the amount of taxes you're going to have to pay. And ignorance, unfortunately, 
Mitzri is not a not a defense, um, not an excuse. CRA doesn't require you to have any education to be a, a small business owner, but they assume that you're going to know everything there is to know about remitting taxes and CPP and EI contributions and all of those things on a monthly basis. Um, so when you're self-employed, nobody's remitting those things on your behalf. So is there is there uh, like a the number one best place to go to for information when you're self-employed to sort of make sure that that base is covered? You know, it, it's kind of funny, but I'd send you to CRA's website. Okay. Um, it's actually a great resource. Oh, they, they want people to comply. They want to be as helpful as they can. It's been amazing to me how easy it is to, you know, to set up an online access account. You can access your past year's tax returns, your tax slips, and things like that. Okay. So being self-employed, there's a ton of resources on CRA's website um, that will help you, you know, basically crack that nut and understand exactly what you need to do to be self-employed. Good. Um, you know, one thing that you've got to be careful of too um, is I meet with a lot of people that are self-employed and they say, you know, I, I make lots of money, but just not enough to pay CRA. And oh dear. at the end of the day, that means that you're actually not making money yeah. because what you have to do is you can't treat these tax payments as discretionary, something that you can either do or not do. Um, you know, physically CRA is not going to come and take the money from you now, but they are going to come and take the money in a few years if they don't get these remittances on a regular basis. Yeah. So it is the case that if you're not able to pay CRA, pay yourself, pay your expenses, then you don't have a viable business, unfortunately. And that's a discussion, you know, it's a very gentle and delicate discussion you have to have with folks. And oftentimes there's ways to figure out what's going wrong with their business and how to fix it. But if the only way the business can survive is by deferring payments to CRA, um, it's really just you're delaying the inevitable, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, what about the GST, not remitting GST? And I and I know that that, well, I, I do know that that can cause problems. Yeah, absolutely. So GST, again, similar to, to well, when you're self-employed, is just another type of tax that you have to collect. And not everybody has to collect GST. So obviously, you know, speak to your accountant, your bookkeeper, your mileage may vary. But um, self-employed individuals who earn more than $30,000 in revenue are required to register with CRA and to get a GST number. And then once you've got that GST number, um, you've got to basically uh, withhold and remit uh, 5% of your sales back to to CRA. And you might do that annually, you might do it quarterly, you might even do it monthly. But at the end of the day, what you have to consider is that CRA is going to call those trust amounts, meaning that money that you're holding in trust for the government. And it can be so tempting, you know, if it's been a really tough month and you can barely pay the employees, but you've got a bunch of money sitting there getting ready to be remitted to CRA for GST, it can be really tempting to use those funds in operations. And just to think, you know, I'm going to use the money this month, but catch it up next month. I see that again and again with clients who, unfortunately, the next month is not what we thought and so on and so forth, and they can build up a big debt on GST, yeah. which is amongst the worst of the worst debts, unfortunately, to CRA because, again, they say it's trust money. It's money you were collecting from us. It's 5% on your sales. It wasn't your sales. It was just the taxes, and it's money that should have went directly back to CRA. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I used to I used to have to uh, collect GST on work that I did, and mm-hmm. uh, I was just merely, I was the flow through of the money, right? Yeah. I collected it and then I had to pay it. It It was not my, it was not mine to, uh, not mine to spend. Yeah. And then just one other little point here, Elaine, and we encourage everyone to get, you know, good accounting and bookkeeping advice. But if you're making purchases in your business, you know, keep track of the GST that you're paying because you are able to deduct that from the amounts that you have to remit to the government. So it's important to get both sides on it, the amount that you've collected, but also what you've paid on your purchases. Exactly. So can we cover this last, this last part of it about what, what do you do if you owe the government money? 
or can we go there at this moment? Yeah, I think we should give people some hope, right? Yes. We've been a little bit doom, doom and gloom, <laughs> <Please>. unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, you know, I get calls every single day. I had a call this morning uh, where the question was, you know, I owe all this money to the government, but my understanding is if I go through a bankruptcy or I do a proposal, the government comes out the other side, all of their debt survives. And that is the case in the U.S. It's not the case in Canada. Mm. So if you've got money owing to the government, even if it is for these trust amounts for GST, um, it's possible to make a deal in one of two ways. So one is if the balance is so great that even offering them, you know, a 20% repayment, a 30%, whatever like that, if that's not even possible, you could choose to file for personal bankruptcy. Any of our longtime listeners will know bankruptcy is not as bad as you think. And we're going to go through probably a bunch of that in in later segments here. Um, But a bankruptcy is one option. A better option or definitely something at least folks should try is to try to make a consumer proposal. You can do that on tax debt. You can do that on just about any consumer debt under the sun. You usually offer offer up in the range of 20 to 40% of the debt outstanding, no additional interest, and nobody can bother you while you make those reduced payments. And I do want to mention as we as we close off this segment that to come and see you, my first appointment to see you to sort of lay out my mm-hmm. situation, that is a free consultation. That Absolutely stands in free. Assault, yeah, yep. which is really important. And the whole team is just so knowledgeable and thoughtful and kind to, to sit down and go through all your stuff and then you can figure out which is the best option. Another great option for you is if you're not quite ready to take that first appointment, uh, go to the website, sans-trustee.com. It's just filled with great information, all kinds of questions and answers that you'll probably have. Or if you want to give them a call, it's easy. It's 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation, as well as to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this is a great segment. Uh, It's all about figuring out who to talk to in order to move forward. Who you going to call? Who you call? Who do you call? <laughs> you. Uh-huh. But, but I mean, the thing is, not always, right? There's some mm-hmm. people out there that can give you some assistance, uh, but then there's some people who can't do anything that a licensed insolvency trustee can do. And that's what this is about. Um, so let's talk about the different types of debt help professionals, because we get inundated with ads uh, from all sorts of people telling mm-hmm. us that they can do a lot more I don't want to say that they actually can't do, but they infer that they can and, mm-hmm. and they actually can't. Yeah, it, it's a really murky um, area of, of the of the you know financial system here in that a lot of people, when they find themselves really looking for debt help, they don't know what's out there at all. And they suddenly have to put together you know this map of, well, this person can help with this and so on and so forth and what's real and what's reputable and what's just a claim that they can't back up. So today's segment, hopefully we'll give people a good grounding that if they're having a difficulty or someone in their family is having a difficulty, here's the potential avenues they might go down and some you know upsides, downsides for each. Okay, good. Let's mm-hmm. start with the lenders. Yeah, so in terms of lenders, so we'll just talk kind of about, you know, about each in general first. So in terms of a lender, if you're having trouble with your debt, you typically go um, to a lender to try to borrow your way out of the situation. That's what got you into it was borrowing some money, so let's try to get out of it. And typically by doing the same thing, and typically that's by the means of a consolidation loan. So the new lender is going to pay off the individual creditors that you owe, and then you'll owe the new lender for the combined balance um, plus the interest charged. So the benefit to you typically is that you're going to pay a little bit less interest and you're going to have some financial simplicity. You're not going to be spending your money 
you know, 10 or 15 different ways and with different due dates and maybe missing payments here or there just because it's all so complicated. You're going to have one payment each month. You're going to pay off that consolidation loan over time. And ideally, it's going to save you a little bit of money. Okay. Now you included payday loan companies in that in that first one as lenders. Yeah. So you know, there's subprime lenders. There's payday loan companies. So oftentimes people will go to these um, these types of outfits to try to solve a financial problem. But the challenge there is just the cost and the interest being so high. So it's not something just because we're talking about it doesn't mean I endorse it. I don't. Um, but for a small short term situation, if you know you could pay off um, a payday loan or cost and the amount of something that's not extreme, it could still mean you know something that's worth exploring. Okay, but that's the key there, is you've really got to research them. Read every every letter of that fine print mm-hmm. because we talked about s- some pitfalls last month and they were scary when there was like uh, you know the subbing the subcontracts oh, yeah, there's and brokerage stuff. brokered cash loans where your interest charges are you know three times higher than they should be by law but they split it into a brokerage and a not so um, yeah be careful if you're not dealing with one of the major banks you know the specialized types of finance houses typically you're paying a whole lot of costs okay debt settlement agents mm-hmm. now this was something I saw a whole lot more maybe three to five years ago, a little less, but if you're Googling online, um, looking for ways to get out of debt, you will still find that this service exists. And what happens with a debt settlement agent is that they negotiate individually with each creditor and they try to achieve a settlement of the amount that you owe for some fraction of the total amount. So typically, if you sit down with a debt settlement agent, they'll say, okay, you owe five people money, stop paying all of them right now and start putting the money that you would have been paying to them into a separate fund where you're going to pay some fees to me as the debt settlement agent and then I'm going to work with these people that you owe money to to try to get them to accept from you, you know, maybe a year or two from now, some reduced amount, you know, maybe 50 cents on the dollar, 70 cents, 30 cents, who knows. Um, but through that whole time, your credit rating is taking a big hit. You're not making any payments to anybody. They might be calling you, harassing you. You've got no protection whatsoever. And then the reason why I don't see debt settlement very much anymore is that oftentimes it wouldn't work at the end of the day. The person would save up for years and years. They'd pay the fees to the debt settlement agent, the debt settlement agent would go to the creditor or the credit card company and say, hey, here's 30 cents in the dollar tomorrow. What do you guys want? You want it? And quite often they would say, no, we don't want it. We want our full payment or we want them to deal with a trustee, for example. Right. So individuals would find themselves worse off because they've been you know, delinquent for three years on their, on their credit now. Um, they've been paying fees to someone who hasn't solved the problem, um, but it is a service that's out there as a debt settlement agent. Got it. And we'll give you the best solution at the end of this, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. So credit counselors, mm-hmm. we see lots of lovely, I've seen a, a bunch of lovely television ads about credit counseling. They're mm-hmm. thoughtful, kind people sitting down with you, helping right. you figure it all out. Mm-hmm. Not not always the best solution. Well, they can be all of that. They can be thoughtful and kind and very nice to deal with, but they can also be a collection agency, which is exactly what they are. So whether it's a not-for-profit or a for-profit collection agency um, or credit counselor, I invite anybody listening to just Google the name of the credit counselor and then look to Ontario's uh, Ministry of Consumer Services and you'll find they're registered as a collection agency. So what a credit counselor can do is give you a lot of, you know, helpful tips and, you know, coaching to help you, you know, have a good budget, 
but at the end of the day, their objective and how they're compensated is they're paid by the creditor to collect 100% of the debt back in a blended monthly payment with no interest. So the benefit is you'll save on the interest, but you won't save it all in the principal. You'll still have to pay back the debts in full, um, and you are dealing directly, essentially, with the creditor, with a collection agent, even though it might seem a little different than that. And see, and that's what the problem that I personally have with them is the seeming part, that they seem like there's something other than what they are, and I think that's really wrong, and I mm-hmm. think that that really um, is just a, a awful thing for the regular consumer to have to deal with or to be aware of. It just shouldn't, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. Yeah, well, if you look on CRA's website, there's a lot of transparency for registered charities, and if you look at some of the large credit counseling agencies and their, um, you know, their revenues, I believe one of them is north of $15 million in revenue, um, their charitable activities last year where they issued a tax receipt, so you think most charities, you, you know, you give them some money to give you a tax receipt, that's most of their revenue, most of their business. It was less than 1%, less than half half of 1% of that total revenue. The rest of it was from the banks, basically paying them a commission for collecting debts on their behalf. Yeah, not good. Mm -hmm. All right, license insolvency trustees. Yeah, so obviously I'm a little bit biased here being a license insolvency trustee myself, uh, but we're the only independent, um, unbiased folks that are there to help you figure out what are your options legally to restructure your debts. So only a trustee can help you with a personal bankruptcy. Only a trustee can help you with a consumer proposal. And a trustee's job is to explain all of these options to you, as well as ones that don't include a trustee. So we have to be able to explain to you about consolidating your debt, about going to see a credit counselor, about considering debt settlement. And then if the best option you choose is to deal with a trustee, we can help you with a bankruptcy or with a proposal. And and when you say legally, you're federally regulated. Regulated. And I know you Absolutely. say that term all the time, mm-hmm. but it's really important. You're the only one that's under those very specific rules. This is how to do it. And that includes what you would pay yep. Sands and Associates uh, or what their fee would be for you to go through the bankruptcy or the consumer proposal. And it's all dictated by law. Yeah, everything is set by government tariff. Um, every trustee in Canada, it's a free consultation to sit down with a trustee and figure out what your options are. And there's no, um, you know, conflicts of interest. There's no, we're working on behalf of the lenders and not for you. We're independent officers of the court. My job is just to make sure everyone abides by the rules. That includes the individual. They've got to be honest with us and disclose everything, but it includes the government, the banks, everybody else. They've just got to back off when a trustee is involved. They can't do anything against the person once they filed with a trustee. Okay. So do you want to, in closing out this segment, we just have about a minute or so, uh, The oh, talk about the overall fees that you should be aware of or be sure to find out about before you commit to work with any of the debt debt help professionals? Yeah, I think just given the time constraints, so be aware yeah. that any individual who's not a trustee is typically going to charge you fees on top of whatever arrangement they can work out. Um, so, you know, quite often if it's a debt settlement agent, you'll be paying a fee that can be very significant and that fee gets paid regardless of whether whether they solve the problem or they don't solve the problem. When you're dealing with a trustee, everything is set by the government. Uh, If you're doing a consumer proposal, for example, you might be paying $200 a month to deal with about $40,000 of debt, um, and the trustee would be getting a portion of that $200, nothing separate from you. Everything is paid by government tariff. It's really important to remember. And listen, if you've got more questions or you're not too sure about something, go to the Sands & Associates website at sands-trustee.com. It's chock-a-block full of good questions and really thoughtful, easy-to-understand answers. And then you can figure out your next step. And if that's uh, by giving them a call, this is their toll-free number, 1-800-661-3030. Or again, visit the website at sands-trustee.com. 
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, Blair, I love these mm-hmm. segments where we get to talk about the kinds of uh, all the different things that you've been dealing with the past month. Yeah, it's, you know, topical stuff, what's in the news, what are the client matters that I'm seeing. And um, this time, with being the end of the year, you know, I thought we'd start to look towards 2019. And, well, I think you know, it's a good idea. A, a few predictions. I don't want to say it's all doom and gloom, but... Well, a lot of it is. Yeah, and and I think information. If you're armed with information, you're in much better uh, shape than if if you just want to, you know, do the the monkeys close your eyes, mm-hmm. don't speak, close your ears, so you don't know what's going on yeah. because it is a bit unsettled. 2019 definitely. There's lots of things that are are not going uh, as well as they possibly could. Oh, there, uh, there's on a big scale. So much uncertainty, right? Yeah, you know, there even is. the whole U.S. and China trade dispute. Yeah. That alone, I was reading today, the Bank of Canada is saying, you know, that could permanently change the productive capacity of the world economy. That, yeah. That's a massive statement to make here. So, you know, obviously things will get negotiated and everything will be fine, but there are. Some some really big factors that are out there. We're not going to focus too much on those. We're going to focus on what we know about, which is Canadian individuals and how they're going to deal with their debts. Good. And I think that's important. Like I say, I think people are better armed with information than not knowing anything. Mm -hmm. So the first thing comes from um, a group, uh, an organization of all the trustees across the country. Yeah, there's an organization called, it's a mouthful, but the Canadian Association of Insolvency and Restructuring Professionals, which, you know, it abbreviates to CARP, which you probably don't need to know and you'll never hear again. which you are one of these guys. I am one of those thousand members. So every trustee in Canada pretty well is a member of CARIP. And it's an industry association, you know, like the Law Society yes. or, you know, Mortgage Brokers Associations, different things like that. Um, so our association issued a press report recently uh, that we expect insolvency rates to increase in 2019. And the basis for that, and by insolvency rates, we mean people doing bankruptcies or consumer proposals, which is what we talk about a lot on this show. Yeah. And this is based on, historically, our association went back and did a really detailed analysis of what is the relation between interest rates and people filing bankruptcies and proposals. And what they found is it's not an immediate relationship, meaning that as soon as interest rates rise, you know, people don't go running to the trustee's office, but it is about a two-year lag from when interest rates start to rise to when insolvency rates really start to spike. Okay. It's, yeah, that's not great. Uh, but it is interesting to know that there is a period of time where I don't know. I like to think it's a bit hopeful, too, that maybe can be, people have an opportunity to flip things around a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. But in any event, yeah. Yeah, and this, not, and this is just history. You know, history yes. doesn't necessarily predict the future, but uh, from 96 to 2000, for folks that remember that were, you know, perhaps getting mortgages around that time, um, there was an increase in interest rates around that time, and there was a 22% increase in the number of insolvency filings, again, about a two years later. from So from about 98 to 2003, insolvency rates went up quite a bit. Yeah. Um, it happened again in 2004, 2006. Interest rates increased, and there was actually a 54% increase in the number of people doing bankruptcies and proposals. So it's pretty significant. Now, why why do you think there was almost double or more than double the amount in that period of time than in the previous period of time? Well, as as we've talked about a lot, we just continue to increase our average amounts of debt in Canada. Okay. So, you know, the five-year period earlier, people had less debt. They could handle it a little bit better. You know, even now, people are so much more vulnerable. We're going to talk about that later in this segment. The debt-to-income ratio, it's at record highs just about right. every, every quarter here. Okay. And, you know, from 2010 to 2016, we've all been living in this very nice, low interest rate Super environment, low, right? right? You know, close to zero. Uh, but in the last year, there 
there's been a big increase. Um, you know, interest rates have the highest they are they've been in a decade. Um, back to December of 2008, the bank's rate is now at 1.75%, which for anybody that was getting a mortgage in 1980, for example, that just seems ridiculous. You know, the bank rate was 20% around there. Right. But 1.75 compared to, you know, 0.25 or 0.5 as it was for periods of time, it's a real significant difference. Got it. Got it. And then you talk about um, the, and this is interesting too, so the increase for interest rates sitting at 1.75%, but since the summer of 2017, rates have gone five times. Yeah. Which is, which again, if you look at what has happened, it's a little easier to predict what may continue to happen then. Mm-hmm. A gradual ratcheting up. It's been about a quarter point almost every time, and the bank took a pass on the most recent quarter, but you know, it's likely that rates are going to continue to increase. Got it. And it's also, it's bigger than, you know, just what it does to your debt. You know, yes, it makes your debt more expensive in some cases, like a home equity line of credit, a variable rate mortgage. Those are the top two debts that are really becoming a lot more difficult as rates go up. But it also impacts the overall economy because rising rates cause consumers to spend less money. Which is a good thing. Could in, be. In a yeah. sense, for for a person uh, to to maybe uh, pull back their spending a little bit versus continue on mm-hmm. at, at a at a, a, a faster rate. Oh yeah, o- overspending is never a good thing. Right, that's uh, what I'm thinking. Yeah. But I know overall impact for the economy is not great. Yeah, the overall impact of consumers spending less is not just that overspending gets cut back, but actually you know regular spending yes, as well. I understand. So then sometimes that can lead to unemployment, business growth yeah. decline. It can be this just vicious cycle. Yeah. Um. So the summary of the report was that 70% of trustees in Canada believe that insolvent rates will increase over the next five years. Okay, but they're not an idea of how many or what the percentage increase is going to be. There's a wide range of, right? of, of you know potential opinions on that. Um, I can't see it being another 54% jump. That's pretty significant. It is. Um, but I think we'll see double-digit increases over the next couple of years. Okay. Now, uh, are we here on the Lower Mainland more vulnerable than, let's say, well, I won't say Alberta because mm-hmm. I know that Alberta's been hit incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, but are we more vulnerable yes. than anyone else? Yes, absolutely yes. Six ways to Sunday. Okay, uh, regardless of our situation. Yeah, and the reason for that is the debt-to-income ratio for Vancouver residents. Um, Elaine, this, this boggles the mind. It's 242% as of June 30th of 2018. That means for every dollar that someone in Vancouver is earning for income, they owe $2.42 in debt. Wow, that's a crazy which amount. Which is a lot. Now, nationally, the rate is 171%, so $1.71. Vancouver were $2.42. That's a crazy difference. Right. But even $171, that's mm-hmm. not good either. Oh, no, it's still That surprises and me. And that's, you know, an all pretty close to an all-time high. It's been in the 170s in the last, you know, couple of years or so, but it's never approached that in years prior. So, and that's the average, the national that's average. That's the average, yeah. So you're taking provinces that where it where it's where they don't have those kinds of levels at all, yeah. and then we're added to it, Vancouver, and then I'm, you know, Toronto, I know it's, you know, real mm-hmm. estate, expensive real estate, et cetera. And you hit the nail on the head because the main culprit driving it, especially in Toronto and Vancouver, is yeah. very high mortgage balances. Uh, again, Vancouver's at 242%. The the only other Canadian province above 200% is Toronto at 208. Okay. And anyone who's followed Toronto real estate knows there's been this massive run up in the last, you know, three, five years. A lot of people overextended on mortgages. So these stats are, you know, scary is, is the word to me um, in that, you know, Vancouverites seem to be more vulnerable than the average person in Canada. Got it. So, um What's the risk? Like, what's the worst, or not the worst case scenario, but what are the bad, what's, what's the bad news about that? Yeah, the risk um, is that as 
you know, debts continue to rise, um, CMHC, which is who put out this study, they're concerned that households might be unable to afford their mortgage payments along with all their other debts. And that could lead uh, to, you know, difficulty to borrow. If you're already overextended, it's unlikely you're going to be able to consolidate your debts and could even lead to, you know, some foreclosures, people having to sell houses when they're not wanting to do so and good luck finding a place you can rent in Vancouver. So there could be some folks who are going to feel really overextended and just won't be able to continue doing it forever. And my feeling is, is because we're talking about this, that it's such a, it's, it's so prevalent that we're talking about it right now as part of this segment in this show that there's probably a ton of people who are already in that place yeah. and experiencing that. I'm seeing so many young families coming into my office these even these past couple months, you know, a couple of kids, both working hard, both parents are employed, um, and they're just struggling because, you know, it, real estate has stopped increasing, so the extra equity they thought they could pull out year over year has stopped, and they find themselves with a bunch of extra debt that they're really having trouble making ends meet. So a lot of the times we can help with a consumer proposal, but sometimes the answer is, you know, you've got too much house for what you can afford to service on your income, unfortunately. Right. That's a huge impact. Ugh. That's uh, that's a huge impact. So yeah. what else? What else can you tell us? Well, I wish I had something good to say, Elaine. <laughs> I wish you did um, too. I'm finding so much great research out there that you know the the upside is I think people are talking more and more about the personal debt issues that we have, and you know a lot of the purpose of this show is just letting people know they're not alone. There's right. so many people that are facing debt problems, and I came across some great research from a company called Seymour Consulting, who I hadn't seen before, um, but they've put out this 2018 Financial Health Index study, and there are some just really really um, staggering statistics here, 45% of Canadians agree money worries make them lose sleep at night. That's an enormous percentage. Oh my God, one in two people, Yeah. right? Are not sleeping well because they're concerned about money. Um, 39% of Canadians agree that money worries affect their physical well-being. And we know that. We know that Mm -hmm. stress impacts your your physical being for sure. Yeah, and I know that the the average bankruptcy or insolvency rate across Canada is about 0.5%. It's about four per 1,000 people. So is it one one one-hundredth of the people that are feeling the pain of their debt are actually getting help? Right. That's what it seems like. It's yeah. 0.4% are actually doing something, meeting with a trustee, figuring things out. But 45, 39%, whatever it is of folks are really suffering these days. And that's what, uh, again, the reason why you do this show is to let people know they're not alone mm-hmm. and that there's some things that they can do. Exactly. And and take sort of take control back. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about housing affordability, and this research touched on that as well. 70% of Canadians agree that housing affordability is a problem where they live. Um, and I drilled that down to BC. 88% of people say that housing affordability is a problem in where, where they live, which is the highest in Canada. You know, next is Ontario at 70%. So again, a significant gap. If it feels like it's harder to get by in BC, it's because it is. And the, it, res- the research really bears that out. Yes. Uh, financial savings. How are people saving these? saving these days? Well, so that, you know, the best practice is you've got probably six months of your, you know, stable income socked away for an emergency. Um, Almost 40% of people have a savings buffer of less than two months. And I bet there's a huge portion that won't even say that they don't have that. Yeah, there's a big portion that probably have zero. Yeah. But yeah, less than two months for all intents and purposes. You know, if you lose your job, unless you're reemployed quickly, that money's going to burn through very quickly. Right. And then you get all the economic effects of all the other things that we've talk, talked about, and, and that can infa- uh, impact employment as well. Mm-hmm. And um, the the percentage of people that aren't 
confident that they could get through a financial hardship. That's uh, yeah. that's also a number to pay attention to. Yeah, maybe just one or two more to, to call out here, as I know we run out of time, but this is such so interesting research to me. But it's a majority of people, 55% are not confident they could get through periods of financial hardship. So that's more likely than not. People are really feeling vulnerable, and if a downturn happened, they wouldn't know what to do. And just the last one here is over a third of people, 36%, have money fights with their partner or spouse. And we know that if you're not sleeping, if your physical health is being impacted, of course it's going to happen to your relationships as well. So my the thing that I want to close with in this segment is, is a little bit of um, brightness, mm-hmm. because I would think that Sands & Associates and, and coming to see you or going to anybody in any of your offices might help alleviate some of that because you could take a look at everything that that family is dealing with and has and and maybe come up with a bit of a solution for them. That's what we do. Excellent. So for more information on anything that we that we talk about on the show and especially this, their website's terrific. There's a ton of information, sands-trustee.com. I'm Elaine Scullin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Bethany Can. She's a qualified insolvency counselor with over five years of experience working in the personal debt help industry. Bethany works with Sands & Associates, primarily in the Abbotsford and Langley offices, for the one-to-one financial counseling sessions. Now, we know a little bit about Bethany. Uh, We know that she feels it's pretty important to provide help without judgment. Boy, is that ever true. And says, through financial counseling, clients begin to feel empowered with knowledge of money management and, most importantly, hopeful about the future. Bethany's number one piece of advice for people seeking help with their debts is... In order to achieve your goals, let go. Don't dwell on the past. Let us help you focus on your future and get you where you want to be. Having said that, I think that's awesome, Bethany. Uh, looking forward, so important because, boy, having debt can be just so debilitating for folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thinking about it from the from the place of once you learn those important lessons, which I think this is where you, you come in in this process, uh, to help people make better decisions or better choices uh, when they come up again. So I think that's great advice. So let's start uh, talking about the counseling sessions that Sands & Associates offer. Um, and are they are they mandatory for clients coming in the door? Yes. Um, in a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal process, it is required by the superintendent to attend um, the two counseling sessions. Now that must be, yeah, I was going to say that besides it being mandatory, I can't imagine doing, going through this process without having some kind of counseling uh, to back it up. Yeah, I think it's really helpful for people. Um, the objective of the counseling sessions is to help with the overall financial rehabilitation. Um, hopefully we uh, are helping people with the skills they need to ideally make a bankruptcy or a proposal, a one-time occurrence in their lives, and we want them like you said before, to feel help, uh, hopeful about their future. Now, I bet um, that's, that's not the case when they walk in your door. Right. No, there is quite a difference from the first counseling to the second counseling session, that's for sure. 
Can you give us a couple of words to describe what the first counseling, what are folks feel? And, and I'm asking you this just because I want folks who are listening to know that they're, you know, that if they're feeling really apprehensive um, about right. taking this step or feeling embarrassed, um, that they're not right. alone. And that's a great word to describe it. Um, I, I do feel like a lot of people are, you know, ashamed or embarrassed um, in the first counseling session. Um, and I do start to notice, you know, 10 or 15 minutes into the counseling session that that does, you know, they start feeling a little bit better as we talk about it. A lot of the people that are here, it is life circumstances that have brought them um, to this place. It isn't, you know, a reflection of who they are or their work ethic. And when you talk to someone about that, um, I really feel like they feel a lot better and differently about it. Their per- perspective changed a little bit. Yeah, I think that that's such a key point, Bethany. I've had so many clients, you know, even, you know, years after have come back and said, you know, it's that when they got the message from us that, hey, this doesn't define you. You know, this is a temporary right. state. You're in debt now. It doesn't mean you're a person who will always be in debt or deserves to always be in debt. But as soon as you can break from, you know, just that self-definition of, oh, my God, I'm a bad person that made some mistakes and I'll never move forward, um, you know, making that mental change is really important. I think the counseling helps with that. Definitely. So what about the second counseling session? Does this happen um, farther into the process or whereabouts does that, does it normally happen? Yeah, it usually happens a month or two after the first counseling session. Okay. Um, Huge difference. Um, I see a lot of smiles come and walk into my office. They're very excited um, to share with me, you know, the updates. They hold their head a lot higher. Um, From what I hear from them, I definitely feel like they're managing their money instead of the money managing them. Um, A lot of them come in and they want to, you know, show me how how much savings they have in the bank now. They're a lot happier. They're stress-free. And a lot of people say, I'm finally sleeping. (laughs) So big difference. Big difference. What are the actual things that you uh, or issues that you cover in your second session? Right. Great question. So um, in the second counseling session, if um, the person has gone bankrupt, then we do a file review um, just to make sure all of their duties are up to date. Um, if they're not, we do. I go over it just so we can get the clients caught up. And could you define this process? Could you define what do what duties the client has? Right. So in the bankruptcy process, um, they have income and expense statements, um, and those are monthly reports, and that shows the income and their outgoings as well. And I really think a lot of people, you know, the first couple months, it's a bit tough to get into the habit of tracking where their money goes. But once they do, they're like, I'm never going to stop because now it's an eye-opening, eye-opening experience seeing how much life has actually been costing me. Mm. So <clears throat> I think they found that really helpful. So that's a duty. Um, you know, there are fees, so they have to make sure that they're catching up on all of those. So those are the kind of things that we go over. Um, what happens when somebody is uh, discharged from their bankruptcy uh, or proposal? Because I'm sure that they're wanting to know that as well. Right. So once um, they are discharged from this process, they do um, get you know notified that of a certificate. Um, then we do suggest, and this is what we go over in the second counseling, that you check your Equifax and TransUnion reports because we want to make sure they are correct. 
Um, we also go over in the second counseling a lot of questions, need versus want. You can usually justify making a lot of purchases, but really dialing in what is a need and a want. Yeah, that's one thing we're, we're great at, at humans is finding the justification for what we actually yeah. want to do. So I know that that need versus want, it sounds so simple, but my God, that's the difference a lot of the time between people um, you know, making the wrong decision or not is really understanding what's a need and what's a want. Can you guys give, give us some criteria of how, you, of how you help somebody figure out what a need is and what a want is? Either one of you. Yeah, Bethany, do you have any, any insight? You know, it completely depends on the person. A lot of um, the needs are, I usually say, go with the medical things first. Some people, right. you know, need glasses and they haven't been able to get glasses. Right. Um, lots of medical things, I definitely say that's a need. Um, once, like Blair says, people justify them. Um, you know, us included, we have to kind of keep tabs on that as well. But once, you know, a newer car... Um, a handbag, you know, mm-hmm. different things. Blair, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I, I think you, you hit it right on there, Bethany. So if I'm thinking about, you know, well, what do you really need in life? You need a roof over your head. You need to, you know, be able to mm-hmm. feed yourself, take care of your family. So all those are basic needs. Um, but yeah, there's a whole lot of wants in there. You know, you might want to grab the coffee on the way to work every morning, but you need that? No. And you could definitely save money making it at home. And there's nobody that comes to us because they bought a coffee every day, but it can be symptomatic of, you know, a, a bigger issue uh, of, you know, just really not having any sort of, you know, denial. Sometimes you have to be able to say, no, I don't really need this. I just want it. And you know what? I can't afford it right now. How about, uh, what are the, what are some other things? I know we, we've, we've made a note about, um, ways to rebuild your credit. And I'm sure for some folks, they can't even believe that they could start that process. Yes. How difficult so, yeah, is we, that? How difficult? Yeah. Well, um, we do go over that in the first counseling session as well, and then we touch on it again in the second counseling session. So a lot of people are very surprised at the rebuilding process, and they can rebuild when they're in this process as well, which I think people are very happy and hopeful about that. Um, so, you know, there's two things that we go over in the second counseling is RRSP loans is a way to rebuild your credit. Right. Um, so that's an installment loan. So that shows your future creditors that you can utilize different kinds of credit. Um, and then another one is the secured credit cards. Um, and that's another, you know, helpful one as well. Absolutely. I just think it's so great that you've been able to take some time with us today, Bethany, because I've, I think the counseling uh, set part of this process is so important for folks. I get all the data and I get all the putting in the information together, but, but having that little bit of support on the, uh, in the process is so important. And listen, if any of this information is resonating with you and, and you feel like you yourself or you know somebody uh, needs a hand to get out of debt, uh, this is the way to do it. First of all, if you want to go to Sands & Associates website, it's sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.